Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. You know, it's, um, it's kind of easy for those of us that uh, maybe have spent our lives, spent our career, or are actively involved in the public speaking to substitute length for strength. It's kind of a bad habit that we can find ourselves falling into. There is this uh, mistaken idea that um, something has to be long in order, f- in order for it to be important. And uh, preachers, pastors are notorious when it comes to this. Somehow we think that the longer the sermon, the more memorable its content. When in reality, uh, you know far different than that. You understand that. One Sunday afternoon, a preacher asked his wife, uh, do you think I put enough fire into my sermon today? You, know, you think it was enough emotion, enough uh, you know, fire into my sermon today? And his wife answered him, well, to tell you the truth, sweetheart, I didn't think you put enough of your sermon into the fire. In other words, you should have kind of burned some of that. You should have shortened that. You should have kept it a little closer. You know, the fact is uh, that uh, truth spoken to the point, it sticks, And anyone who makes a living with his or her voice knows that preparing a short talk is always a bigger challenge than preparing a long talk. It's just the way it is. It's just the way that it goes. You know, I think about Jesus and his speaking and that kind of thing, and Jesus was often criticized by the scribes and by the Pharisees for what he said. But I can't think of anywhere in Scripture where Jesus was ever criticized for how long it took him to say it. No, he, he never wasted any time. He never wasted a word. He never wasted a, in any of his messages. And I don't think there's probably ever been a message that's ever been preached that actually distilled more truth in less words than Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I mean, you talk about to the point. Jesus began by offering a very quick series of blessings that got our attention. This is a way to live the blessed life, the way the, to live the, uh, the life that God approves us. And then Jesus talked to us about how we can make a difference as we live out that blessed life by being salt and being light, just single-syllable, easily understandable terms that are actually familiar to everyone, and the challenge fit the symbol to perfection. Since you're salt, go out there and pour yourself out, and since you're light, go out there and make a difference in our world. In other words, let's just live lives that make a difference. And then after challenging us to live out a righteousness that surpasses external behavior, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees in verses 17 to 20, Jesus got specific in his Sermon on the Mount. He began to dig beneath the surface of our inappropriate actions and to really begin to address some of the heart issues behind our actions. First, in the area of heart anger. That's what Jamie talked about last week. And today, in the area of heart purity. So I want to encourage you to take your Bible, if you would, and I want you to open it this morning to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking together at verses 27 to 30. In fact, let's stand together, if you would, and we're going to read that passage together this morning, Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. Jesus said this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, today we thank you for the privilege of being in your word today. We thank you for the privilege of of knowing and understanding your word today. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of just uh, being able to uh, share it together and uh, talk about it together. Father, as you open your word today, our desire is that we would communicate your word accurately, that we would communicate it in ways that communicate what it is that you meant it to mean. Father, we pray today as well that we would be clear as we share your word today, that as we leave this place, we would have a better understanding of what you teach us in your word. And Father, help us to make your word practical today because we want it to, we want to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. But also today, Father, as we deal with a, a difficult topic, a topic of lust, uh, Father, above and beyond just being accurate and clear and practical, uh, Father, I pray today that we would be honest about this topic. Father, it is a difficult topic, but we need to deal with it frankly. We need to deal with it honestly and upfront. So help us to be honest in our sharing today. Father, also help, help me to be humble as I share the word today. Father, help me to own my own struggles in this area and to be not pointing fingers today or not act like I'm pointing fingers today because the only fingers that should be pointed today should be at myself. And Father, I pray that as we deal with this topic today that we would find hope. Father, we have Christ in our lives, and with Christ we have forgiveness. With Christ we have grace. With Christ we have mercy. Father, we have your word today, and your word is powerful. Your word is transformative. And Father, we, we also today have, um, we have the Holy Spirit of God within us, and that Holy Spirit Uh, part of his purpose of being in us is to make us into holy people. So, Father, our desire today is to communicate your word accurately, clearly, practically, that we would do it in an honest way, that we would do it in a humble way, and that we would do it in a way that brings hope to all of us that are gathered here in this place today. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, the Bible teaches that, um, that human sexuality is, um, is really one of the basic building blocks of our humanity. I mean, way back to the very opening chapters of the book of Genesis with the creation of Adam and Eve, uh, they're described as becoming one flesh. And then you work your way through the Old Testament to the book of uh, the Song of Solomon, and we have that very sensual poetry that Solomon includes in that book. We understand that sexuality is created by God. And everything that God created there in Genesis, he tells us, that it was very good. Not just good, but very good. But you know, the scriptures also show us that sex can be practiced in sinful ways. It can be practiced in immoral ways. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it clear to all of us that human sexuality can and often does uh, go wrong. And in the world that we live in today, it has gone severely wrong. Our culture has, uh, has sort of taken this wonderful gift of God and twisted it in so many ways. In the opening verses of this paragraph of Scripture that we just read a couple of moments ago, um, we, we see that Jesus is sort of making a contrast. He's kind of, kind of contrasting um, a religious interpretation, an external view of God's law, with what we might call an internal or heart interpretation of God's law. In verse 27... 
He gives the religious interpretation. He gives sort of the religious standard, uh, so to speak. He simply says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He said that was something that they all knew. He was talking to a primarily Jewish audience. It was one of the Ten Commandments. It was something that uh, many of them had heard since they were little children. You just don't commit adultery. You don't do that. That's just not something that you do. It's not right. And you and I might look at that and say, well, that's enough said. We understand it. You just don't commit adultery. But that's not enough if we're going to model heart purity. If we're going to be one of those people that are talked about earlier in this chapter that are blessed for being pure in heart. So because of, uh, it's just not because of, of the righteousness, of, because the righteousness of a follower of Christ is not external. It's not to be performance-based. It's not to be just a behavior only. Living the blessed life, the life that is most enviable, living the God-approved life, which is the one that Christ wants for us, goes beyond just keeping that external command of not committing adultery. And so in verse 28, Christ shares sort of what we might call the heart standard or the internal standard. He says simply in verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So in one sentence, the sentence of verse 28, Jesus sort of elevates our entire concept of sexual purity beyond just the physical behavior to a matter of the heart, a matter of the mind. His words expose us to the what we might call the radical righteousness that should be at the heart of every true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the heart purity that Jesus calls for in our lives. The heart purity that he talked about in verse 8 when he talked about being pure in heart. The hungering and thirsting for righteousness that he spoke of in verse 6. So when we read verse 28 and we read the standard that Christ calls us to, we can't help but wonder, is there anyone in the world who is not an adulterer? I mean, just think about it for a moment. I mean, let's be honest. The problem of lust, the problem of sexual temptation, it is enormous in our world. It's all around us. And as followers of Christ, we can't help but ask the question, how do I live in purity in a culture of sensuality? Is that even possible to do so? Can I do it? One of our former presidents, Jimmy Carter, a man that is familiar with Southwest Michigan because he's been here many times to help with some of the Habitat for Humanity projects in Benton Harbor. But our former president, Jimmy Carter, famously said this, I've looked on many women with lust. I've committed adultery in my heart many times. God knows I will do this and forgives me. That's one of our presidents. That's one of our leaders. And the point is, who doesn't lust? How can we live a life of heart purity in this age of impurity? I mean, it's hard enough to avoid the actions of verse 27, but now we have to avoid the thoughts as well of verse 28. And I think that's part of Jesus' point in this text. He wants us to recognize that heart purity is really difficult. It's not easy. Jesus knows that, and he's concerned about lust. In fact, he's so concerned about it, he takes it so seriously that look again at what he says in verse 29. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members, your right eye, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In other words, if your right eye is giving you offense, if your right eye is causing you to lust, pluck it out. He says, cut off your hand if it's causing you to sin. I mean, just think about that for a moment. I mean, if we were to take that literally, then I believe that probably every man here and maybe even some of the women here are what we might call permanently left-handed pirates, right? I mean, we're going to have a hook and an eye patch. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying, isn't it? I mean, that's the point he's making. So how do we make sense of what Christ is teaching in verse 29 and 30? Well, I think that Christ is clearly using what we call hyperbole. And within our understanding of inspiration, the means by which we receive God's word, and in our understanding of inerrancy, the the nature or the quality of God's word, there is an allowance for figures of speech. It's just like in other places where Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you got to hate your mom and hate your dad. Does he literally want us to hate mom? Does he literally want us to hate dad? No, he's using hyperbole. And what Jesus is saying is that this issue that he's talking about here in verses 27 to 30 is so serious that you have to take extreme measures. Jesus is saying that when you look at a woman for the purpose of lusting, you are already committing adultery with her. So take extreme measures to stay away from places, to stay away from situations, to stay away from relationships and eye contact and in touch contact that causes you to lust. That's what he's saying. And that really brings us to sort of the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is this. The heart sin that is attached to lust is that we use another person simply as an object of our desires. It is the ultimate selfish act. The other person doesn't matter at all, except as a means to fulfill our desires. And it's that objectification of another person that is really a violation of their fundamental dignity, their fundamental value as a person that is created in the image of God. And that's why Jesus says that there's no room for lust. That's the point of it all. This is about heart purity. It's about not objectifying other people. It's about seeing that other, that other people with the worth and with the dignity and with the value that God has given to them. And beyond that, I think it's seeing another person as one for whom Christ died to rescue, to save, to redeem, to transform, to make that person into a person that hungers and thirsts for righteousness, to make that person and transform that person into a person that is pure in heart. Now, we might say, but wait a minute. They're putting themselves out there to be objectified. That's what they want me to do. They want me to objectify them. Well, even if that's true, even if that were true, is that what I should want for that person? When I objectify that person for the purpose of feeding my own sensual desires, I am saying to that person, and I don't think this is be too strong, I'm saying to that person, don't you come to Jesus. Don't you be rescued. Don't you be transformed. Don't you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Don't you be pure in heart. Don't you come to know the life that is most enviable. Don't you come to know the blessed life. Don't you come to know the life that God approves of. I need you to stay right where you are, doing what you do. That's why lust and pornography is so sinister. And that's why Jesus, here in this text, takes it so seriously. It's that important. 
It's that critical. I want to share with you a, a, a little personal story. It's a, it, it's a little humorous, and I recognize that this topic is not humorous, but uh, at times we need a little levity when we're talking about a serious topic. I want to share with you a little story, and if you kind of listen to the story, at the end of the story, it sort of makes a point, and uh, it kind of dovetails in with what Jesus is talking about. And I want to be upfront about this. There is a part of this story that I have never shared with my wife. So this is going to be new information to her this morning. It's a part of a story that uh, I didn't share with her because I didn't take the advice I was given, and I didn't want her to know the advice, and I didn't want her to know that I didn't take the advice that I was given. So this is, uh, this is confession time for me. Well, in 1984, uh, we got our first brand new car. Um, a good friend of my parents uh, was a general manager at a Honda dealership in uh, northeastern Ohio, where we were living at the time. And uh, uh, we needed a car, and uh, we needed something that would help us with a family. We were married. We had one young child, and uh, we had another one that was on the way. And at the time, we were driving just a little red Chevy Chevette, not a Corvette, a Chevette. And uh, it was okay for two people, a little tight for three, was going to be impossible for four people. So um, uh, we didn't have a lot of money at the time, but Howard, who was the general manager, uh, got us a, a great deal. I'm sure he lost a ton of money on this car. Uh, but he bought it. He found us a brand new 1984 Honda Civic wagon, and it looked just like that, right? That was the car that he found for us. Uh, and when we met with him to talk about what we needed, and then we went back to actually pick up this brand new car, um, he could tell that I was pretty enamored with having a brand new car. I'm not sure at the time whether I was getting the car or the car was getting me. Uh, not really sure about that. But I remember, um, I remember as we were going through all of this and thinking about all this and, and, and looking at Howard and what he was kind of, kind of seeing on my face and that kind of thing, I remember Howard uh, kind of looking at me and, and talking to me. I mean, I told Howard how thankful I was for the car. I told him uh, how appreciative I was of all that he went through to help us get this car. I told him that I was going to treat this car like it was my firstborn child. I told him we were going to put plastic on the seats, that we were going to cover the seats with towels, which I did. Um, I told him we never eat in this car. I said the kids wouldn't even have snacks in this car. I told him we'd park at the far end of the parking lot. My wife was tough and strong. She could carry those kids all the way into the store. Anyways, Howard, knowing where my heart was, took me aside, and he said this to me. And this is something I've never told my wife, but he said this to me, Mark, when you get home, I want you to get a hammer, and I want you to go out and put the first dent in your brand new car. And then he said, then I want you to go to the garage, and I want you to get a little bit of greasy, oily dirt and put a smudge on the back seat. So put a dent in your car, put a smudge on the seat. Howard looked at me, and he said to me, just do it. And I seem to recall looking at him at that moment, and I thought to myself, get thee behind me, Satan. I said, there's no way under God's blue heaven that I'm going to dent my brand new car or smudge my brand new seats. But Howard went on to say, Mark, if you dent the car and you smudge the seats, that way you're not afraid to use the car. That way you don't have to park at the end of the parking lot to protect from door dings because you've already put the first dent in it yourself. And then he said this, and this is kind of why I want to dovetail back into what we're talking about. He looked at me and he said, Mark, things are not to be loved, they're to be used. 
And in the message today, I think the point that Jesus is making is the flip side of that, that people are not to be used, they're to be loved. Jesus is saying, never treat people like things. Never treat people like things. It's amazing how much time I spend, maybe we spend, loving and caring for things and then using people. When that happens, when we do that kind of thing, you know, it, it, it's, it's a heart issue. So what would happen if we took to heart, if we took seriously the fact that things are to be used and not loved and people are to be loved and not used? In this passage, Jesus calls us to a different worldview where people are dignified. All people are dignified, not objectified. Where our faith is deep, and our faith is a very powerful characteristic of our lives. I mean, it's not wrong to admire a beautiful woman. It's not wrong to admire a handsome man. But we glance. We appreciate. We think how God is a great creator. But it's when we take that next step and we linger and we desire and we use that person, not as a person, but as a thing, that is the sin of lust. And to God, that's a very, very serious issue. How is it that one of the greatest gifts of God's creativity, something that he said is very good, human sexuality, has gone so wrong in our world? Now, we might want to blame technology for that because sex, sexuality is available anytime, any place, anonymously. But you know, long, long, long before the internet came along, human beings were struggling with God's good gift. Just read the book of Genesis. It is full of sexual brokenness sexually broken people. It's just full of that, long before the internet ever came along. Even in the time of Jesus, he understood that sexuality was not only a great gift of God, but also a gift that was capable of being perverted in serious and destructive ways. So Jesus teaches us here in the Sermon on the Mount that the real problem isn't external behavior. That's verse 27. No, we have a real problem on the inside. It is the problem of our human heart. And that's why Jesus addresses the issue not just of adultery, the action, but also of lust, the heart. He understands that this is one of those problems that can only be solved from the inside out. We'll never solve it from the outside in. And in his uh, hyperbole, in his hyperbolic statement about plucking out one's eye or cutting off one's hand, he is pointing out that there must, we must control the input. It's not that that's not important. We can't fill our lives with tempting situations and tempting activities and tempting relationships and tempting images that open the door for lust. We can't do all those things and remain pure. But in the long run, this problem can't be solved from the outside in. Certainly, outside boundaries help us to remain pure. Any action that we can take to guard ourselves from lust will always be helpful, but only, but at the end of the day, lust can only be solved from the inside out. Ed Dobson was pastor of Calvary Church in Grand Rapids for many years, and he wrote, book, he wrote a number of books, but one of the books he wrote was called A Year of Living Like Jesus. And in that book, he tells a story about a student who came up to him after he gave a lecture at a Christian university in Florida. The young man that came up to him had only one eye, and the young man said to Pastor Dobson that he actually took Jesus' statement to pluck out his eye quite literally, and he had his eye removed because he was lusting. Dobson writes in his book 
that he, quote, stood dumbfounded, unable to believe that he had truly met someone who had done what Jesus said in this area of lust. But that's when the young man said something to Pastor Dobson that he would never forget. The young man looked at Pastor Dobson and said this, I wanted to follow what Jesus said, so I had my eye taken out. But now I'm still tempted with lust, but it's just with the other eye. And the point is this, we have to change our hearts. We have to change the way we look at people. Plucking out our eyes and cutting off our hands won't change our hearts. Just like the student that uh, confronted Pastor Dobson in, in the quote from his book, you know, we might just become one-eyed lustered or lusters or one-handed lusters. So the heart of the matter is this. The heart of the matter is that most sexual sin, whether lust or adultery or whatever, is that we use another person as a means for our own gratification instead of caring for that person, instead of caring about that person as a person who is made in the image of God, one for whom Christ died to redeem and transform, we simply use him or we use her to fulfill our sexual desires. In other words, the heart of sexual sin is almost always selfishness. It's selfishness. And it's this heart issue of selfishness that Jesus is telling us must be radically cut out at the roots. We have to look at and see people in a different way. We have to see them as fellow human beings created in the image of God, as people that are worthy of our respect, worthy of valuing, understanding them as objects that are not designed to fulfill our desires, but objects that are designed to glorify God, and we would want that for their lives. So again, things are not to be loved, they're to be used. And people are to be loved and not used. So you say, well, where can we start? How do we become doers of the word? What can we do in our lives to sort of make a difference if we're struggling in this area of lust? Well, again, let me share with you a little story that might help us with this. When I was in seminary, I took, a, I took an apologetics class. And apologetics is just sort of a big word that means why we believe what we believe. The Bible is full of things that we believe, right? And apologetics deals with the issue of, well, why do we believe what we believe? And so in that apologetics class, while I was in seminary, the professor of the class wanted to introduce us to a number of, uh, of the uh, kind of uh, best theological and apologetic minds of our, of our day, of our time. And he did that a couple of different ways. First, he did it through our required reading. We had to read a number of books that were written by some of these men and women, which were the great kind of theological and apologetic minds of our day. And the other way he did it is that he set up a, a number of phone meetings with a handful of these individuals. Now, when I was in seminary, this was before FaceTime. It was before Skype and Zoom and Google Meet and all those ways of having sort of video meetings together. So we had to just do it over the phone. So the professor made the arrangements ahead of time, and during our class time, he would call them up, put them on speakerphone, and we would spend the class hour kind of listening to them and interacting with them. And I remember one of those hours we spent talking with a man by the name of Cornelius Van Til. That was his name, kind of an odd name. But he was actually one of the founders of Westminster Theological Seminary, which is still one of the premier reformed seminaries in our day. In fact, he taught at that seminary for 43 years. And so here we are as a class of uh, seminarians listening to Cornelius Van Til on the phone. And toward the end of the hour, Van Til opened it up for questions. 
And I remember one of the students in our class asking him this question. He said to Cornelius Van Til, what's the most significant thing you've ever heard or read outside of Scripture? What is the most significant thing, the most profound thing you've ever heard or read outside of Scripture? And I thought it was an interesting question. I think all of us were thinking that he would say some ginormous theological statement that would just blow us away and take forever for us to figure out what it was he was saying. But he didn't. In fact, he didn't wait to answer the question. He answered it immediately. And he answered it with 12 words. He said, here's the most profound thing outside of Scripture I've ever read or ever heard. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. What's the point of that? The point is that sometimes simple is the most profound. And I think that may also be true in addressing heart purity. It is not an easy thing, but it doesn't have to be a complicated thing to make a profound difference. So what are some of the simple, down-to-earth things that we can do that will make a profound difference in our lives when we struggle with this sin of lust, of heart purity? Well, here's a couple of thoughts. Number one, and again, these are not new. If we need to cut something off, then cut off the input. Cut off the input. Pornography, tempting activities, tempting relationships, tempting situations. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, 11 to 14, he says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come to you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's what God wants us to do, to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That means we need to take some very important, even radical steps to change our visual and behavioral habits and access to things that, that, that cause us or put us in the place where we might lust. Jesus is telling us that anything that stands between us and following him should be ruthlessly cut off torn out, thrown away, eliminated. Drastic measures are appropriate and necessary. Halfway measures will never do. But again, it doesn't have to be difficult to do that. It doesn't have to be complicated to do that. We just need to take some simple steps to cut off the input, and those simple steps will make profound differences in our lives. Here's another simple step. Get a community of support and accountability. Get a community of support and accountability. If you are a young person here, and you are struggling with this issue of lust and sexual temptation and heart purity, I encourage you to be at youth group on Wednesday night, to be there and to go up to one of your youth leaders and just to talk to them about the struggle that you're having. We need that support. We need that accountability. If you're a young person and you have godly parents and you're struggling with this, this issue of lust, I invite you to talk to them about it. It might be a difficult dis discussion, but it's an important discussion. I can remember after my first seminary in college, or my first sem uh, 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 semester in college, that I came home and I had worked a job for a couple of years in high school before I graduated, and I had the opportunity to go back to that job during Christmas break and earn a little extra Christmas money. And I remember coming home, and I remember sitting on the couch at home, and I began to talk to my mom and dad about everything that went on in that situation. 
And within that job thing, there was so much sexual temptation and so much uh, pornography and other things that were there. And I remember just sitting on the couch and I began to cry out, say, or, or cry and say to my mom and dad, I can't go back there. I can't be part of that. I know money's important and I know we need to pay for college, but that is not a place that God wants me to be. And I can remember my mom and dad putting their arms around me and praying together, saying, Mark, you don't need to go back there. We don't want that in your life. We don't want that for you. So if you have godly parents, talk to them about it. They're not going to throw you away. They're not going to throw you out. They're going to embrace you and encourage you in all of this. But again, if we need to cut something off, cut off the input. Take some simple yet profound steps to do that. And then get community, support, and accountability. That's why our church encourages small groups, because we recognize that we need each other. And it's not just about saying I'm a part of a small group. It's actually about being in the group. Being there as regular as possible, as consistently as possible. It's about being a little open about our struggles. It's about praying for each other and encouraging each other. It's a simple step of getting community that can make profound differences in our lives. And then a third simple thing to do is meditate on the Word of God. Meditate on the Word of God. Listen to these verses. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the prophet Jeremiah writes, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, I can't even get my heart. There's things going on in my heart that I can't even fully get my arms around. And then in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, David writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and then lead me in the everlasting way. If I can't fully understand my heart, the only one that can is the Lord. And so I need to ask the Lord to search my heart, to know my heart. He primarily does that through his word. It's his word that speaks to our heart. It's his word that transforms our heart. Psalm 119, verse 10 and 11, David writes, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. David realized that it was, it was the word in his heart. It was allowing God to use his word to search his heart. It was allowing God to use his word to, to show him the, the areas of his heart that needed to be changed. It was all those things together that would help him, that helped him to not sin against God. In fact, I think one of the most practical things we could do, again, not a, not a complex thing, a simple thing, but a profound thing, is just to take Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is full of verses that talk about the word and the heart and how the word affects our heart and changes our heart and the desires that we should have toward God's word. Psalm 119 is broken up into into little eight-verse sections. I think it would be a wise thing to do, a fairly simple thing to do, is just to start and take one of those sections, one of those eight verses every week, and just spend the week just reflecting on those eight verses you know, reading them over and over again, getting a little journal, and in that journal, rewriting those verses into our, our, kind of putting them into our own words, and then meditating on them, thinking about them. What are the promises in those eight verses? What are the directives in those eight verses? What is God saying to me in those eight verses? Praying over those things, and just spend a week in those eight verses, and then the next week, take the next eight verses, and then the next week, the next eight verses, and just study about the heart and the word, and the difference that the word makes on my heart, and how my heart should have this passion for the word of God. And just take some time to go through that. Again, not a complicated thing, a fairly simple thing to put in that time 
yet it's a thing that can make a profound difference in our lives. And here's one more thought. Spend time thinking about things that change our heart to be closer to God's heart and that keep us thinking of people as people and not as objects. That can change everything. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any, if there is any, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So as you and I go through our day, and as we have all of these thoughts that go through our mind throughout the day, to begin to kind of filter those thoughts and think about those thoughts and say, is that an honorable thought? Is that a pure thought? Is that a lovely thought? Is that a commendable thought? Is that something that gives praise to God? Is that something of excellence? God says, think about these things. So again, just daily evaluating the thoughts that are going through our minds. Again, I know these things, I know that heart change is not easy. I know that heart change takes a lifetime. I know that we'll never have a heart that is totally pure until we stand in God's presence. But God wants us to not look at people like things. He wants us to love people, not use people, not objectify people. He wants us to take simple steps that can have profound differences in our hearts. That's what he calls us to do. Those are the steps that he wants us to take. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, Father, for these, uh, these words about uh, sexual purity and heart purity and all of these things. Father, we recognize that this is, a, this is a tough issue. I know personally it's a tough issue. It's an issue that I have wrestled with uh, for all of my, my adult life. Uh, Lord, it's something that, that seems to just never completely go away. But Father, by gathering people around us who will encourage us and help us, by cutting off some of the things that uh, bring input into our lives, by spending time meditating on your word and allowing your word to have its powerful transformational effect in our lives, by evaluating the thoughts that we think so that they are honorable thoughts and pure thoughts and, and lovely thoughts, a difference can be made. Father, help us to realize that things are not to be loved, they're to be used. And people, they are to be, they are to be loved and not used. So we thank you for your word today. We thank you so much. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. And I was thinking this morning that uh, we were going to be doing this message on uh, sexual temptation and lust, and, and then we were going to segue into communion. And I kind of thought to myself, well, how do you segue from communion, or from lust to communion? And uh, I was reminded of a verse, a verse that's uh, tucked away in the Gospel of John. John chapter 6 and verse 37. Jesus said this, he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Think about that last phrase. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I know many of you have, uh, have, have read uh, Dane Ortland's little book, Gentle and Lowly, but I want to just read to you a, a paragraph out of that book that is about that little phrase in that verse, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And it ties right into what we're talking about today. Dane writes this, Fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistances 
to Christ's love. Even when we run, even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and will hold us at arm's length. We say, no, wait. We say cautiously as we approach Jesus, no, wait, you don't understand. I'm really messed up in all kinds of ways. And Jesus responds, I know. Well, you, don't, you know most of it, sure, certainly more than others, but there's perversity down inside of me that is hidden from everyone. And Jesus says, I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past. It's my present too. And Jesus says, I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. And Jesus says, that's the only kind of person I'm here to help. But the burden is heavy, and it gets heavier all the time. And Jesus says, let me carry it. It's too much to bear. And Jesus says, not for me. Don't you get it? My, offense, my offenses aren't directed toward others. They're ultimately directed against you. And Jesus says, then I'm the one most suited to forgive them. And then I say, but the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll be fed up with me and push me away. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never, ever, ever cast out. Folks, that's communion. We come to someone with all of our sin and all of our darkness and all of our, our heart impurity. And he says to me and he says to you, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's part of the point of communion. That's why we take it today. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.